Hi, everybody, and welcome back to East Screen, West Screen. It is Wednesday, November 18th, and this is episode 13. Uh, once again, I am Paul Fox. And I'm Kevin Unlucky 13 Ma. Yeah, this is a, it's a good thing we weren't doing this last Friday. We should have done it last Friday. Perfect. Yeah, Friday the 13th. I don't know. It's, 13 is not a really super superstitious number in, in Chinese, as I understand it. Not not like No, no. But it's kind of know. picked up in Hong Kong from Western culture. Yeah. You know, 13 is an unlucky number. Yeah. Well, hopefully this won't be an unlucky episode for us, but I don't know. Given 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 the second film we're going to be reviewing, <laughs> we may we we may have to hold our breath for a moment. <laughs> but before we get into our reviews, um, Kevin, you've been pretty busy. You watched a lot of films in the film festival, and you got a chance to see some other stuff. You said you got to see the message finally. Yep. Um, um, I'd like to finally. get some of your thoughts on the message because I know that I talked about that when we did our East Screen review for that. Um, what did you think about it? Um, I thought the first hour and a half of it was very entertaining. Um, quite good. Production values are good. The, the performances were good. Um, it was quite interesting dynamic between the characters and the whole game of the espionage game was very interesting. But then the final half an hour, I think, when they finally had to drive all that, you know, the emotion, the battle drama home, that really didn't work for me. Mm -hmm. uh, um, it was interesting that they turned this supposedly good guy, supposedly the so-called phantom, the, the good guy, they sort of play him up as like a bad guy, like this guy who is not revealing him himself or herself and letting all these people die. And I thought it was interesting, but then in the half an hour, last half an hour, they had to justify everything and, you know, with going, turning back to the whole nationalism thing. Yeah. That didn't really work for me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Did you, did you kind of figure out, um, who the who the mole was they they weren't uh, really making a i mean the, the the phantom was kind of the twist thing but the mole wasn't i don't it didn't seem to me as i mentioned when when i reviewed it it didn't really seem like they were trying to keep that a very deep secret it, it seemed kind of obvious um well, it had to be one of these those five people and if um the way they eliminate the one the way they the way they eliminated made it pretty easy to guess mm -hmm. I thought they were going to really twist it and make the least obvious one to be that, you know, I thought it was the least obvious one was the most obvious one, but yeah. no, actually they did. It turns out it was the sort of more obvious one. So yeah, yeah it wasn't really hard to guess no. but the, actually the twist after that uh, was the more slightly more surprising, but mm. no, it's not a very complicated or clever game they're playing there anyway. Yeah. Um, what, 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 what did you think about some of the, torture sequences and that we talked about uh, last time did you think that they were you know acceptable or, or, do, or do, were they were they kind of hard to watch how to how did what was your take on that um for me it was fine um my girlfriend and her friend the whole time they they were they had the biggest reactions and they turned their head just refused to watch but actually you know during that first one the first um interrogation sequence with the chair mm-hmm I laughed at that. I thought that was kind of funny. I, I there was a kind of a sick. I think the the screenwriters they kind of had a sick thing going where they kind of laugh at each other at what they could come up with. Mm -hmm. That's what it seemed like to me by the time they pull out the different torture techniques. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, there was one sequence that was a little hard, but no, it wasn't as brutal as I expected it to be. Mm -hmm. But I certainly push it by by sort of mainland no rating system standards. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. And what what did you think about? because you mentioned that you had a problem with sort of the last half hour and some of the nationalist messages. Do you think that the the nationalism that's being on, put on display here is as strong as some of the other films that we could look at, like Ip Man or um, Founding of a Republic or some of the other things we've talked about previously? Well, honestly, the, the problem here isn't really nationalism, because I know what they were trying to bring it to more than about nationalism. But the way they delivered it, the, the melodrama, all the crying and all that, the reveal, the, the way they reviewed it was just, was a little too much for me. Nationalism, I thought it wasn't, yeah, you're right, it's not as bad as Iman or Founder Republic, um, even though it is sort of hinted there, not so subtly. But yeah, it was, oh, my, my problem was more the way they, they delivered the melodrama more than the, the idea of nationalism. Mm. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's move on and we'll talk about some more films in just a moment. But first, we've got a little bit of news to discuss this week. Um, the first bit is the Jump trailer is now out. Uh, Kevin, you want to tell us a little bit about the about Jump? I haven't seen the trailer yet. Yes, Jump uh, is uh, the film that made me feel sorry for Stephen Fong because uh, so he made this film. I think it was two thousand and uh, two thousand seven. I'm guessing um, he was working on this film called Jump, produced by Stephen Chow, and he uh, had a cast. He had a Kitty Zhang who was in CJ Seven. He had uh, Edison Chan as two leads. It was going to be this. Uh, it was produced, financed by Sony. So it was a big, big sort of Hollywood finance uh, movie. But then, of course, in 2008, the sex, uh, sex photos, sexy photos game came out, um, which means uh, the producers decided not to keep Edison Chan in the film. And that means uh, it, essentially one third of the film had to be shot by Stephen Fung. And apparently no male actor would take the role because they didn't want to essentially be second, play second fiddle to Edison Chan, I guess. So uh, finally, they, they found, a, I think, a Korean actor. I'm not sure. Um, they reshot the whole thing, and finally, it's coming out on December 5th. Mm. Um, this, the trailer, um, it's a little more comedic than I thought. It's, it starts off with a very typical like American Hollywood trailer kind of thing, like a small-town girl with big city dreams. And then mixed with some sort of Stephen Chow-style gag, which one of them include um, Daniel Wu uh, cameoing as a, as a plastic surgeon uh, with fake nose. Mm. That was kind of amusing. But the rest of it, uh, it's about apparently now. I guess the the focus has been shifted to the Kitty Zhang character, about the girl going to the mix to Shanghai and then learning how to dance with a little bit of kung fu. So, if you involve the Stephen Chow gags, the film looked very very mediocre. Mm. Um, but I'm gonna have to give I'm gonna give Stephen for the benefit of a doubt because he has shown that he does have some directorial talent enter enter the Phoenix. Um, I didn't like House of Fury as much, but I still think he was a very talented director at the time. And I'm willing to give him with Stephen Chow on board, even though the last movie Stephen Chow direct, uh, produced was Dragon Ball. I'm still gonna have to give Jump a benefit of the doubt and you know, hope hope for the best, I guess. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm willing to see it. Um, I do like Stephen Fong. I, I did like House of Fury, although I think Enter the Phoenix was uh, much stronger um, than House of Fury. I did I did like them both, and I think he's He's very talented. Uh, he's got a. He's got a. I think he's got a strong future as a director, um, if he can, you know, sort of channel his efforts and if he can find financing. Um, but I think that probably this this work is probably something he just wanted to f- probably offload because yeah. of that whole, you know, um, that whole scandal that that went on. Um, hopefully, it'll be a good film, though. Hopefully, you know, it'll be surprising and. Um, you know, it'll be a, sort of a gem of the December time period. All right, next bit of news. Um, not really related to movies, but thought, thought we'd talk about it anyway, um, since I'm originally from the U.S. and Kevin lived in the U.S. for a long time. Uh, President Obama has visited China this week, and there's been a, a lot of news uh, going around about his visit. Uh, for me, one of the most interesting aspects was that he decided to speak to a group of students in Shanghai, talking about things like, you know, freedoms and uh, freedom of speech and things like discussions on Twitter and internet freedoms and this type of thing, which is yeah ironic. You, you know, I, and yeah, I wonder, I wonder if it's ironic to the students that they can actually talk to America's leaders and yet they can't interact with their own leaders like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a, that's a pretty good point. Um, and, and also the other bit of irony that has been pointed out on a lot of news and talk radio and, um, and other magazine articles is the fact that here he is talking about things like the internet and free speech and, um, the, the speech itself was not being broadcast, uh, anywhere in China. You couldn't access it. The, <laughs> the, the White House was apparently streaming it live, uh, through their website. But if you were in China... At least, according to some of the press reporters that had traveled over there with Mr. Obama or President Obama, that you could not access it. Well, I'm surprised they let him do it in the first place, actually. Yeah, I, I think that I think he kind of pressed it, from what I understand. Um, that there was some speculation as to whether he might, you know, he might pull out. 
and not go ahead with the talk, but he pre- I, I, I gather just from what I've read, he pressed it and he went ahead and did it. And it's seeing as it's being seen as a somewhat bold move on his part. But again, you know, the, the, the sensors being what they are outside of that group of students and people, you know, in the rest of the world, um, nobody within China will really, you know, be able to access that unless they somehow get outside of the great firewall of China. All right, uh, another bit of little bit of news uh, regarding films. The Marvel character who's getting who's being cast as the sort of the next big superhero film, uh, Thor, um, has had some further casting applied to it. Most notably, um, there have been three actors who've been cast as sort of friends of Thor. They're they're these characters called the Warriors Three, and Tabanobu Asano has been assigned the character of uh, Hogan, which is one of these Warriors Three characters who are buddies of Thor, and um, it'll be interesting to see him in, in that role. I one of the one of the big problems I, I used to collect comics um, in my younger days. And one of the big problems I always have with Marvel is is some of the characters um, that they, the the names that they come up with are just so derivative of of things like you know this character Hogan, he's got an Asian look to him. He's not he's not part of the sort of Asgard pantheon that makes up the Thor universe. Um, and so you know basically they the, the writer drops the S off of Shogun. And makes it Hogan, you know, and uh, they they do this all the time, and I find it kind of annoying, and that's ultimately why I I kind of drifted away from Marvel comics to to reading other things. Now I'm looking at the um, the link that you sent me, Paul, about this. So is Hogan the one that looks like Genghis Khan? Yes, the yes. yeah, and that's and perfect. If, yeah, because Asano has played Genghis Khan before. Yeah, and if you read the if you read the history of the character, um, you know, it's there's not a lot known about him, but it's. Apparently, you know, he's uh, he was cast out by a, a, a nomadic lord um, named Mogul instead of Mongol. Right. You know, so it's you know, this kind of stuff goes on in Marvel a lot. And I, I some people don't mind it. It, it just kind of irks me. I've never, never been a big fan of Thor. I mean, I was always an, an Iron Man junkie more than anything else. I like Spider-Man a bit. Thor was always a bit of a mystery because you know, you've got this superhero universe, but at the same time, you've got Thor, who's, you know, from Norse myth, Norse mythology. And it's, you know, there's been talk of bringing him over as part of an Avengers movie, which would include Iron Man, the Hulk, uh, Captain America and others. And it's just gonna be really weird just to see if this movie is made in such a way in terms of the art direction and the, the design that you'd be able to fit it with um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. and his Iron Man and, you know, Edward Nor- Norton uh, and his Hulk, if he's going to continue on with the character. Um, Kevin, are you a, a, a fan of the superhero genre at all? I wouldn't say I'm a big fan. I'm more like a casual viewer, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I watch all the big films. I mean, I've been watched both versions of the Hulk, but I never really read much of the comic books. I go by what I, whatever I read on Wikipedia. So mm-hmm. don't, don't kill me. Time to talk about our East Screen film this week. And this week for us, it's all about the numbers. So our first film is called 721, a Hong Kong film uh, released this year during the recent film festival and also later than released in general screens. Uh, I haven't had a chance to see 721 yet, uh, but Kevin's seen it. So Kevin, can you give us a bit of a synopsis and some of your thoughts on this latest Hong Kong feature? Sure. Um, the biggest controversy here in Hong Kong about 7 to 1, which 
I'm sure the, the filmmakers should be thankful for because um, that's the only attention they ever got is that uh, the poster of the film. Have you seen the poster of the film, Paul? It's quite controversial. Yeah, I heard it was uh, some people were saying that it was copying a poster from another film. Yes, he says copy of a uh, vantage point. Um, the vantage point poster has a black silhouette figure holding a gun. And then uh, all these, because uh, uh, um, Vantage Point is about one event told from different points of view. So you have the each frame from one story filling up this black silhouette. And the 721 poster is similar. It's a black silhouette figure holding a knife with all these different seven characters or seven stories as one each frame taking up the silhouette. And, you know, I don't blame them, the poster design people. Uh, for doing this, because the film structure is very much like Vantage Point, um, even though you know it's all from Rashomon anyway, right? Yeah. So, um, so this uh, the film uh, is based on this one event uh, at a convenience store. Um, someone gets stabbed. Um, there's an attempted robbery, and then some people get hit by cars. So then the the film, as the film goes on, it shows seven different stories that lead up to this one event. Mm. Um, the, the most notable thing about this film, other than the sort of create, I think it's kind of creative for Hong Kong film to do this kind of, uh, this kind of storytelling. But um, the other sort of, uh, what's the word, uh, the attention, I guess the attention point, whatever it is, is that it features a similar cast to uh, the Herman Yao films, uh, Split Second Murders. Mm. Uh, even though it's shot before Split Second Murders, we see uh, Chrissy Chow, uh, Siu Fei, um, well, uh, Elaine Kwan, uh, uh, Pa Ho, um, essentially a big part of the cast that sort of recycles. So the universe got really pissed when uh, Split Murders, Split Second Murders came out and featured a similar cast. And apparently they they accused Split Second Murders of copying them, which um, after seeing the film, it's not really. Because um, Split Second Murders, the, the point of the film is about sort of thinking about stopping and thinking about the action you're about to commit before you do it. Mm. Um, in, in Split Second Murders, it is kind of the, the, the only message of the film, but in 721, it's really left until the very end of the film, uh, in a way that I'm not going to spoil here. But anyway, um... So, and, so is, uh, is it, there a twist ending? Uh, it doesn't really affect the film. It's really like a what-if, more than a, more than a actual real having real any effect on the film itself the film ends its regular story and then in the middle of the credits it cuts to a different thing you know, you know what, what i mean like it cuts to like a what if this happened yeah an alternate ending in a way without having to watch a dvd um and then you know and, and the film itself i think it's fine um the the sort of uh puzzle structure of it is not really awfully clever um, it does make sense by the end of the film. Uh, each story does come together, um, and and it is very entertaining because it runs by really very quickly. And uh, this film is directed by uh, Danny Pang, uh, one of the Pang brothers. Um, and he he even in Q and A he said, yeah, I like to he likes to make um, ordinary things seemingly exciting by adding really bombastic music. That is done on purpose. Mm -hmm. So even though the film is itself is not really that intense, he has that kind of directorial touch to make it seem like it's more intense than it is. Mm -hmm. And so, so the result is, it is a fairly entertaining film. Um, the actors, like in Smith's Second Murders, the idol, even the idols work do fine here. Uh, Siu Fei is a little more annoying here than he was in Smith's Second Murders, but it's not as bad as his past work. So even he here was fine. Um, the most noticeable, the, the, the biggest, I guess, the attraction here for some people if they care is there's a lesbian love story here that uh, that's certainly, that's, that's a payoff moment that's certainly worth watching. Stephanie Chang here plays a lesbian, uh, sadly not Chrissy Chow. Mm. Um, it's that Chrissy Chow here plays a sort of a nerdy convenience store clerk who didn't really show anything. Um, sorry, Paul. <laughs> uh, and other than that, you know, I, I think even though it did really bad here, like, it, like specific murders, it did really bad at box office. Um, actually, it's one of the, the two films this year that sort of gave me a little bit of hope for the idol films. Well, and I'm, I'm, you know, we were talking about this before before the show, but I had planned on going out and watching this, and I got some free time, and I checked, and it was like not showing anywhere, you know. So yeah. I, it, part of me one part of me wonders if if you know it's not the film itself; it's just not around long enough for anybody to sort of take notice and. 
I guess, uh, you know, in cinemas, if, if it's not doing gangbusters the first weekend, they, they pull it after a week, it seems like, these days. I think the problem is that the, the, the whatever the record company has, has given the idol film genre such a bad rep that people just refuse to show up anymore. They just rather download at home or especially the young people. They, they know there's really, they, they've been betrayed before, so to speak, by the quality of the films, and now they just won't give them a chance anymore. Yeah. Well, what would you say about the quality of this? I mean, in terms of the the cine- cinematography and the lighting, and does does this come off, you know, as a, as a fairly decent quality film that you'd want to see in the cinema, or is it something that you could wait for video on? Oh, the like I said, um, Danny Pound, he... He has a thing for making something that's it's really ordinary seem really intense by using music and the image and yeah it is quite slightly produced um and it's a very entertaining film and um i think that it is it's not really that good of a film let's face it because it's kind of feels kind of insignificant by the end because the main incident itself isn't really all that you know great it just sort of takes place in a convenience store and the scene is only about two minutes long but you know, I don't think that's there's no reason for anyone to not watch this in the theater if they like these people or if they they're a fan of Pong's work. Mm. Now, I I remember a film, I can't remember the title. It came out, I'd want to say like, you know, over eight years ago or so, and it, I keep thinking it has something to do with rave, rave party or something in the title. Rave fever, rave, rave fever, fever. Alan Mack. Yeah, and it was that was also sort of a Rashomon kind of a kind of a uh, plot device well if i remember correctly where it was like the same night but told from different perspectives um yes, yes. Do, do you think that that the and, and i remember i just remember sam lee in that movie and one person saw him doing something and they thought like he was hacking up a body and it turned out to be something completely different you know the, the very typical sort of plot device that that rashomon made famous do you think that that is overused here? I mean, it, I, I, we could probably make a very long list of films that have sort of used the different points of view to tell the same story. Um, does does that work well here, or is it just an old plot device that you know it shouldn't it probably shouldn't have been used? Um, well, because the way Palm built the story was to build it on that structure, so it's hard to tell the story in any other way. Um, yes, I, I believe that is overused. It's been overused since Vantage Point. So if you were to compare this film with um, Split Second Murders, what would you say? Mm. That's, a, that's a really tough question. Um, for a really fun Idols film, I think Split Second Murders is a better Idols film because it really used, to, used these people well. But um, I think if you're in a mood for a more serious film uh, or for a film that's, I guess, more focused or something. Yeah, yeah, for like a cin- more cinema, i say 71, even though it's a real, really relative, relative thing. Well, I, I, would, I would gather that this film would be a bit more approachable from, you know, people outside of Hong Kong, people who, because as we talked about, Split Second Murders had a lot of sort of uh, in-jokes with regard to local news and, and local cultural bits. Um, is that's, is this one is this one a little bit more sort of standard fare that you don't really need a lot of cultural insight to to take it in? Yeah, that's a good point. That's something I didn't think about. Yes, yes, this film doesn't really have much local humor as far as I'm I can remember. In fact, it's really not all that funny in a film. But no, yeah, yeah, you're right. It is a more approachable film uh, as an idol film. It's much more approachable for non Hong Kong audiences. Yes.
All right, let's move on to talk about our West screen pick with, for this week. And again, we're sticking with the numbers. And this this week's film is Roland Emmerich's big blockbuster of the season, uh, 2012. And both Kevin and I have seen this film. And I guess since, Kevin, you started off the last time, I'll start off this time. So 2012 tells the story of the end of the world, which is basically the premise for most of... Roland Emmerich's other films, uh, be it Independence Day or The Day After Tomorrow. Um, that being said, that's typically enough to draw most people into the theater. And it drew me into the theater. Uh, we were shown prom the promise of lots of special effects and cities being destroyed and um, lots of apocalyptic imagery in the various trailers that were released with our young hero, John Cusack, uh, running from disaster to disaster. Um, but the film is very, very problematic. Problematic in such ways that really turned me off. Um, so I'm going to go through some of my big beefs with the film. And then Kevin, who has a little bit more of a positive take on it, uh, can give some of his more positive commentary. The basic premise of the story is that you have... First, you have the Mayan calendar, and unfortunately, the Mayan calendar aspect is not really something that's played up. It's sort of just mentioned in passing, but it basically says that in December, uh, I think it's December 21st of 2012, there's this celestial alignment of planets that happens only once every several thousand years or so, and that signifies the end of the Mayan calendar, and that signifies supposedly the end of the world, although if you if you do some of the research online, it's simply the end of that calendar cycle, and there's supposed to be a cycle that starts up after that. But Roland Emmerich likes a good, uh, you know, a good plot hook for disaster films, and so this is the one he went with. Basically, the story is about a big solar flare that occurs, perhaps because of this uh, cosmic alignment that takes place. Uh, this huge solar flare occurs, and then it gets very technical. The solar flare creates neutrinos. The neutrinos, which last time I heard neutrinos, I was watching an episode of Star Trek, and they were talking about like cloaking technology or something. I thought I heard neutrino in, a, in the Intel commercial, but no, that's Centrino. Sorry. Oh, it's Centrino, yeah. <laughs> Maybe the, yeah, it's, it's going to be the next Intel process, processor, the neutrino. So the neutrino... Uh, is this little particle? Um, I guess it's a sort of it's 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 a tiny particle. It doesn't it it passes through things. It doesn't really cause any problems, but this solar flare causes them to start to bond together somehow, and they start hitting uh, hitting into the core and moving around very rapidly. So basically, the core of our planet gets super super hot, and this superheating of the core causes one like the middle layer between our crust and the core to sort of have a caramelization. Uh, they have some technical term in the, in the film that they use, but I've forgotten it. And basically it makes the core and the crust sort of separate. And so the crust can, can like swivel, swivel around basically um, on, on, on top of the core because it's have, has this separation process because of the superheating. And this causes all kinds of, geological problems, earthquakes, and volcanoes. And so our little hero, uh, Mr. Cusack, who's a uh, one-time, he, he, he was a one-time writer, and he now works as a, as a, as a driver for limos, yeah. Um, he stumbles across this, and he finds himself in the midst of the, the world coming to an end. Um, and so basically, I mean, there's a lot of exposition that goes on, but, but but basically what happens is it's him and his family, and he has two kids and a wife with, with, with whom he's separated, and her new husband, their stepfather, um, basically running from disaster to disaster. And so you start out with them in California um, with a major earthquake, and basically a good portion of California sinking into the ocean. You have then uh, at another point in, uh, I think it's Yellowstone, with a major volcanic eruption that they also have to flee from. And ultimately, they find out that they need to get to China. Um, 
And so through luck and circumstance, they get to China where um, the, the Indian, the Indian Asian continent is now undergoing a huge tidal wave because of the, these, these tectonic shifts that have occurred. Um, so basically you've got three major disasters that at one time would have been their own movies. You know, you, 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 in the past, if you go back and you look at disaster movies, you've had an earthquake movie and you've had a volcano movie. And, you know, we recently talked about, you know, Hyundai, the, the, the tidal wave movie. So Emmerich has taken all of these and compacted them into one big movie. Um, and of course, uh, there's, there's, you've got governments involved and there's an out, you know, there's, there's a, there's a safety net that that's going on that everyone's trying to get to. And that they have to get to this place in China. And so ultimately they're they're all ending up on planes trying to band together to get to this place in China, uh, because that place, you know, promise has a promise of safety. And outside of that, the movie just descends into lots of, you know, ridiculous exposition. It's got, as everybody can see from the trailer, it's got great effects. Um, it's got a pretty decent cast. Um, you've got, I can't say his name, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, I guess is how you'd say it. I don't know. <laughs> I can't say the name either. Um, but he, he basically plays this character, Adrian, who's this young scientist who discovers much of what's going on. And so he gets pulled in to sort of the, the, the team that's trying to prepare for this several years before because they figure out what's going to happen. You um, know what? I, I'm very thankful that he's not the character that spends the entire movie trying to convince everyone that it's happening, but no one believes him. Yeah, Thank I, God it, they it, believe him from you know, minute it, one. It, well, it kind of started out that way, but I think that perhaps they'd, they'd run that horse into the ground in earlier films. Um, but, but yeah, he... he, he sort of takes on this role and by the end of the film it's interesting because you have Danny Glover who plays the president with obvious allusions to the current president Barack Obama but he sort of steps in and takes up that role by the end of the film you know he's sort of the younger uh African American guy who's um posed to sort of lead humanity uh, out beyond this disaster you've also got uh, Woody Harrelson, John Cusack, who unfortunately I really like John Cusack. I really do. I've liked him since he was making sort of teeny bopper movies uh, back in the day. But here he just seems like he's kind of phoning it in. Um, he he doesn't, he didn't really capture me uh, or, or with his character. And there's just so much coincidence that goes on. You know, it's like the, the, the crust shifts just to the right point so that the guys on the plane won't run out of fuel and they actually get to where they need to go. Um, which they were nowhere near getting to, you know, at, at, at this one point when their plane was running out of fuel. So there's just a lot of coincidence, um, characters running into each other that know each other at these certain places. That's very, very convenient. Um, kind of really hard to swallow. There's a lot of science talk about why all this is happening. And I think for me, um, that really ruins it. And you, you can go, you can look at websites talking about the science that they use in this movie and it's really pseudoscience and a lot of it's, it's just not very plausible. And I, there, there are just things that are really obvious to somebody who's not even a scientist that you'll pick out, you know, for example, you've got all this, all these disasters and things going on. And yet at the same time, you know, there's no kind of atmospheric disturbances. There's no storms happening, you know, it's this major event that's, you know, shocking the foundations of our planet from, you know, emanating from its core. The core is superheating, but, you know, the atmosphere is fine. Nobody's hot. Um, just a lot of stuff that doesn't really make sense. And, you know, you've got people fleeing in planes. The guy who says he doesn't know how to fly, but he's flying like, you know, he was a fighter pilot in World War II. And it's just, it's really, it's, it, it's very formulaic, I would say. Um, it's, it's down, down to the very closing scene, you know, with the way the sky looks and, and the way that people are, are, are acting in the very last, last moments of the film. It's just so formulaic. It, it, it was for too, really too much for me to take. Um, there, the, the one character who I really liked, uh, played by Tom McCarthy, who was the stepfather, Gordon, um, Emmerich just gives this character an enema, Emina. Uh, uh, you know, it's like an enema because he's like saying, oh, stepdads of the world, 
you know, screw you. <laughs> it's just, <laughs> you know, it's like, come on. It's just, you, it's the things that have to happen to the characters here. It's just so planned out and plotted out and laid out. It's just like a cookie cutter. And that for me was the biggest problem of the film. And, and I kind of really went into this with a, with a somewhat positive attitude and, and Emmerich's films have usually disappointed me when it comes to characterization and when it comes to things like, Oh, you know, it's just, you know, it just happens that this has happened and it's very fortunate for the characters. You know, I remember back in the independence day, right. Um, they're flying up to the big alien saucer and I, I don't remember what they had. They had a lap, a notebook computer and it just happened to interface with the alien ship they were flying up. You know, it's like, come on guys. I mean, th th this is, this was the kind of stuff they could have gotten away with back in the fifties and the sixties. But today, I don't know. I expect a little bit more, you know, I don't know, a little bit more, you know, intellect in terms of some of the writing. And I think that the big, my biggest problem is that they try and explain everything away, you know, using this science. And I was thinking, why did I like District 9 so much in co comparison with this film? And I think part of it is that they just left a lot of things unsaid. You know, they didn't try and explain how the ship in District 9 was hovering there in air. They didn't try and explain the, the very specific details of how the alien technology worked or how the guy was undergoing a transformation. You know, it was just very, it was left unsaid and that sort of left it more to the imagination. And I think if they would have done that here, I think if they would have just said, oh, something's happening. The world is having big problems and, and people are trying to deal with that rather than spending so much time on the science and explaining why this was happening and preparing for it. I think it probably would have been a better film in the long run, at least for me. Um, all right, so that's my rant. On 2012, uh, Kevin, I'm going to throw the ball over to your in your court and let you have some say on this. Oh, oh Paul, don't hold back, man. Let it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, I think if Wall Jing happened to make 2012, I think we wouldn't be we wouldn't be complaining. I think, I think the same issues would occur, but I, don't, I think we'd be whining less about it. Yeah, I, though... I know. I probably need to go watch something like Super Typhoon or something, but even so, I mean. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's. I, I think actually the thing is I could I could accept I could overlook a lot of the problems that you have because it is almost like a parody of what it's trying to do. It's like a parody that push everything that it's doing to the extreme so much. Like it's an extreme use of irony in the film. Like you see, there's like one scene where the supermarket is tearing up, and of course before that the guy says, "Yeah, I feel like there's something tearing us apart," yeah. and suddenly the supermarket splits up more. On the boat when the two old guys are singing a song that goes like you know name the end of the world as the end of the song yeah like the the extreme in everything this made it sort of really cheesy fun yeah for me by the end though i, I sat i was sitting in the chair the whole time and i said if if at the end of the moment at, at the end of this movie and i and i i don't want to give any spoilers away and this may give something away so if you're afraid of spoilers you know stop here and wait until you see it or fast forward but I said to myself, as I was watching buildings coming down and Las Vegas getting consumed by an ash cloud, if if at the end of this movie I see sunlight, you know, and I see the sun shining on people's faces, I am going to be so ticked off. And, you know, sure enough, I came out of that movie very ticked off. Um, <laughs> you know, it was just, it, I don't know. I, I'm sorry. Let me let you let me let me let you continue. No, no. Uh, no, I think all your, all your um, issues with the film are completely relevant. You're right. The, the characters are terrible. I think this has some of the uh, most thankless human characters in the history of cinema. Let's face it. I mean, um, Danny Glover playing himself as if he was the president. Um, and then you got the, 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 the Adrian character and then John Cusack somehow. You know, I could buy everything these characters go through in the film except for the fact that John Cusack's limo is the only car that survives through a collapsing <laughs> Los Angeles. That I can't buy. Anything, everything else I can buy. Yeah. Even the, spoilers here, the boat possibly crashing into Mount Everest. Even that I could buy. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. But the whole thing with the, the car driving through collapsing Los Angeles and the sterilized destruction. Yeah. 
everything the really how fake it all looks and and how you never see anyone actually die so people can actually enjoy seeing these things get destroyed yeah well this is some, I mean, this is something we talked about in the last episode and and you know now to be fair you know the film does have some pretty amazing special effects but i think that they yes, really sort yes. of push push things to the extreme um and and basically you've got like three major chase scenes uh as people run from these effects and and there 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 is a real good character drama that is centered around this idea of who do you save who gets who who gets to be saved you've got this mechanism in place to save a few hundred thousand people on the planet and you know it so it it comes down to this ideological struggle and then you've got this this other thing that rises up if you can save a few more but it's going to you know it's going to come at a certain expense of you know luxury or or maybe it'll make things harder um to survive do you do you save those extra people or not you know there's some really good dramatic material i just don't think they utilize it in in a deep enough way i think it could have been it could have gotten it could have gotten a lot better had they focused more on some of that and maybe pulled back with you know one one of the chase scenes maybe well no i don't think they wanted to why no, would they? no, I, mean, I don't. They I, I don't think they want to either. And 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 ultimately, it you know the, the with the way the film ends, it you know it's it's got this very you know very clean cut ideological sense. And I remember the I remember the day after tomorrow sort of ending the same way. You know, you have this big huge thing that happens, and then suddenly it's over. You know, and it's like there's no there's no continued fallout. Or there's no continued repercussions of anything. There's no real real sense of oh where do where do we go from here kind mm. of an idea and, and for me i remember walking out of the day after tomorrow thinking the last five minutes of the movie was for me the most interesting part i wanted to see okay what happens now you know you've got all these displaced people you know that to me was where the interesting story really started all the exposition and special effects yeah it was nice and pretty but i don't know I, just for me it wasn't that interesting well, don't worry, Paul. Um, there are plans to make a 2013 TV series, yeah. so uh, I'm sure the story will continue. But um, it just—I'm sure it won't be as fun as the as what we saw on the yeah. big screen. Because I mean, it's it's it is interesting that in a way, Roland Emmerich has made a film, a few good, not few good, but an entertaining film about our own deaths. You think yeah, about but... how. How twisted that is. But that's 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 his mo. That's what he does. I mean, yes. Independence Day, aliens come down and explode big buildings and cities, and you know, leave a fire, leave fiery destruction in their wake. And then, you know, uh, day day after tomorrow <laughs> was a, a super ice cyclone that froze like eighty percent of North America. Um, yeah. So th that that that's what he tomorrow, does. At least, well, in the day after tomorrow, these people could sort of identified themselves with this group of people who are stuck in a library, you know, because it's like the everyman. Yeah. But in, in 2012, it's like, wait a minute, if, if I'm in this movie, I might be dead by 40, 45 minutes in. Because there's <laughs> no way I could be like these four people, yeah. like only these four people. Well, I think, I think that, you know, John Cusack's character was supposed to be, you know, the everyman, the writer, the, the, the struggling writer who's not really doing what he wants to do. And, you know, he's got sort of a failed marriage and he's got family problems and, he doesn't have the connections or the skills or anything really. And, and he ultimately relies on everybody to sort of get to where he's going by the end of the film. Um, so I think he's supposed to be that character, but again, I, I just didn't feel a strong connection with him. Um, and you know, it's, it's, it's interesting the, the role that sort of China takes on and, and Tibet and you've got, you've got India here in, in, in a small way. Um, but ultimately, again, this is a sort of a, a very U.S. dominant uh, dominant film, obviously, because it's coming out of Hollywood. Um, I would have liked to have seen more of, you know, uh, China and, and how they were, you know, dealing with, with the issues. And the, the film does have somewhat of a global feel, but uh, it, it doesn't really cover as much internationally as I would have liked. Careful, Paul. There might be a three and a half hour Derek just cut in the works. Oh, yeah, I can't wait. The one thing I will say was, which I found very funny. I, I, I don't know if I should say it's funny, but I found it. I found it. I don't know. I smiled. Um, was 
there's a scene, and I think you can see this in the trailer, where there's a huge tidal wave coming to Washington. And um, there, as part of the tidal wave is getting ready to slam into the, the I don't know if it's the White House or the Capitol building, uh, you see this the a U.S. aircraft carrier, and it's the John F. Kennedy, um, which yeah. I just thought was funny because my my father served on the the John F. Kennedy um, when he <laughs> did he, he did service a number of years ago, and it was it was decommissioned for a while, and I guess it was um, you know it's it's sort of like it, I guess it's supposed to be a museum or something if I remember correctly, um, but it was just interesting to see that moment, and I think my my dad will get a kick out of that. That's why you can't take the film seriously. Like it's though the ironies like these. It, I think the film is an extreme parody or parody to the genre rather than yeah. than uh than the end all of all of the genre. Yeah, I think, and that's what I that which you could approach it in. And that's how I think that's how you can best appreciate the film. Yeah. Well, I guess our final verdict would be that I'd say, if you've got you know some money burning a hole in your pocket for a matinee, go in and sort of put your brain on pause. Try not to think too much and enjoy the pretty visuals. Um, Kevin, what would you say? Yeah, um, give your brain a break and just go, go to the biggest screen with the loudest digital surround system you can find for many. All right, let's move on to our Flying Buddha picks of the week. And once again, we're going to be sticking with the numbers. My pick this week is the Hong Kong film uh, 2002, uh, which sounds like we're trying to keep it in the, the 2000 millennium. But actually, 2002 is the number of a special department in the Hong Kong police force um, that goes hunting ghosts. They are ghostbusters. Uh, that are given in a sort of an official section uh, of the police, and that section is called 2002. Uh, in this film, you have the young, sort of coming out, coming fresh out of the, the Gen Y, Gen X cops genre. You've got Stephen Fung and Nicholas Tse, and Nicholas Tse plays a police officer named um, Hyde. And he's... Uh, been in the police force for a while. He's the veteran, and he has a partner played by Sam Lee. Um, and th their their partnership is a little bit interesting because uh, they're both ba both basically police ghostbusters. Uh, Nicholas Say is a human, and his partner Sam is a ghost. And the idea is that this unit has to operate with one human and one ghost. And so when I was I went back and I remember seeing this originally in the cinemas back in two thousand and one when it came out. And as I was watching it again in preparation for the show, I was like, wait, one of us and one of them. Where have I, where have I heard this before? And then I remembered this is the sort of the plot device used in the TV series Heroes um, with the, the company where they have uh, one normal person and one hero. And they go out and find or, or one genetically modified human. And they go out and hunt these, the, the other uh, modified humans. Um, and I was thinking, wow, did, did, did they... Did they watch this film and they, they borrow this concept from 2002? I'm not sure. Maybe it's just coincidence. But um, as the story goes on, uh, the ghost character, Sam Lee, uh, his time comes and he needs to pass on to the spirit realm. And so uh, Tide needs a replacement partner. And he finds one in the character of uh, Wind, who is played by Stephen Fung. And Wynn comes in, and he's very eager to join this department, and he has he's a little bit psychic, so he can see ghosts um, in, in their form, which is one of the reasons why he is selected for the position. So ultimately, uh, Fung finds out that he is responsible, or, or one, of the, one of the partners has to die, uh, because there has to be one human, one ghost. And this is all ordained by fate, as told by sort of the resident uh, Taoist master, feng shui master, who's played by Law Ka Ying, who's really great um, and funny in, in the role that he has for this film. And so Feng is very disappointed because he thinks that he's the one who, who's going to have to die, um, and he's not sure how to handle it. And 
he's not sure if he wants to stay in the department if that's going to happen but there's a series of killings that goes on and hauntings that goes on between a fire ghost and a water ghost and the two of them manage to kill the fire ghost and this makes the water ghost who's played by a somewhat younger Alex Fong uh, which is very interesting to see him in a sort of a bad guy role here uh, in a swimming role. Yeah, and and he's he's the water ghost, so he yeah he's still sort of keeping in line with his, his recent swimming career, but he he gets very angry and he starts to take revenge and go after the the girls, the love interests of the two characters, and so that's the basic premise of the film. It's basically a little bit of sort of a, a Men in Black meets uh, the X Files meets Ghostbusters set in Hong Kong. Uh, it's got an average level budget, I would say. The effects are not that great, but they work fairly well for the film, uh, with the exception of one scene where uh, there's a little kid who gets smacked by two cars, and it, it turns out to be okay because he's a ghost, but the, you, you can tell from the way that that scene was shot that they must have just had no budget to reshoot it because the, the dummy that's used... Uh, in the scene as it gets hit by two, hit by the two cars is just so completely fake that it's amazing it, you're you'd be surprised that they kept that scene in uh, but for the most part it's some pretty decent effects uh, and some pretty good action sequences and some of the fighting that goes on and if you are somebody who likes Stephen Fong and Nick Tse and sort of that whole uh, Gen X feel that they bring to some of their earlier work you'll pretty much find this as a rather entertaining film. And so I would say definitely try and get a hold of it. I think that the DVD, um, the, and I have, what, what, which version do I have? I have the Golden Harvest DVD. Uh, I haven't seen this on the shelves for quite some some time, and it doesn't look like it's in print on online shops like Yes Asia. The, the VCD is still available. Um, there is a Japanese version uh, that's really expensive, so I wouldn't recommend getting that one. And it's not on Netflix, surprisingly. I looked up Stephen Fung, and he, he most of, a lot of his films are available on Netflix, but not this one for some reason. So there must be some distribution and some rights issues, and I'm not sure if they're getting ready for a, a, a new release of this or not. But it's got some good extras. Uh, it's got a making-of feature that you can see, and pretty standard DVD stuff. Uh, overall quality in terms of the visual imagery is not, not too great, but not too bad either. So if you're if you're you like cop stories, you like a little bit of supernatural paranormal thrown thrown in with a little bit of comedy, I think you'll enjoy this film. So Kevin, what's your pick this week? Yes, uh, keeping with the numbers thing, I'm picking the Japanese film uh, K20, and of course this will be related to our sort of Hong Kong uh, origins because it stars Takeshi Kaneshiro, um, and I I didn't notice. I mean, considering that Japan is a really huge um, what's the word I'm looking for? A superhero genre of Ultraman and and you know, uh, yeah. Mass Rider. Uh, apparently, superhero genre is not that big in live action films. So K20 is a is an interesting take because um, not only does it introduce a live action superhero hero, a brand new one, uh, not based on the comics, it's also um, takes place in an alternate universe in Japan. Uh, takes place in a uh, Japan where they won World War II and. I think the uh, aristocrats are in power, and then uh, you have this poor circus um, acrobat played by Takeshi Kaneshiro, who is somehow um, framed uh, to be the uh, the fiend that is called K20, who goes around and starts trouble and gives trouble to people in power. So uh, as the as he is as he's trying to pr uh, prove his innocence, he sort of has to take on the K20 role using his acrobatic skills. And of course, there's a late a damsel in distress played by um, Matsu Takako, if I remember correctly. Um, and uh, the film is a lot of fun. I remember seeing it at Japanese theater, and uh, even though I fell asleep twice, I remember it was uh, extremely entertaining. Uh, Takeshi Kaneshiro, as one can expect, is really charming, especially in his uh, native language, Japanese. Um, the, the people who did the special effects are the ones who did the always films, and they are considered sort of the front runner of Japanese special effects because they always make so you take commercial Japanese film special effects to new levels. Um, here it's not really that groundbreaking, but it is fairly impressive. Uh, Action-wise, it's very entertaining again. 
there's some very it is a very Hollywood style film. Uh, the the pace is very quick. The the comic the, the comedy is very broad, and it is kind of a light uh, fun affair. Um, it was very underwhel it did very underwhelming here in Hong Kong, but um, the DVD I got here the Hong Kong release is cheap. Uh, it looks nice, and the film is very finely very well produced. And um, you know, it is a really fun film for fans of Takeshi Kaneshiro. So if I can, uh, I, or, if I can ask a quick question, because um, you said this is sort of a superhero genre, is this character more of a, is he more of like a Batman in that he's just got a, some natural skills, or is he more like a Black Mask and he's like, you know, been enhanced like somehow and yeah. he's got like some super powers? Oh, he's very much like Batman. Like his skills is based on his ability to to use disguises mm. and uh, and to uh, move, like, to do parkour, essentially. Yeah, parkour, that's the right word. In the middle of the film, there's a parkour training sequence in Takeshi Kanashiro. That's quite funny. Yeah, so the film, uh, the, the character, K-20, really utilizes physical skills, existing physical skills, and, and instead of, you know, superpowers. And that makes him a quite interesting character. And again, the setting itself, the aristocrat Japan, is, is really interesting. Um, and... Yeah, it's uh So film. you said you said this is um it's an alternate sort of an alternative timeline, alternative universe, but is it is is it comparable to like contemporary period? Is it like two thousand something in terms of the year and the technology, or is it, you know, a bit earlier or a bit later? If I remember correctly see here's the thing, I'm not sure if it's Japan it was Japan that never went into World War Two or it, it won World War Two. Either way, it's an alternate universe. So then the the yeah, it, it's not a contemporary period. It's uh something like it sort of reminds you. It sort of recalls back to the the, the classical Hollywood time, like the twenties and the thirties. Mm -hmm. A lot of these art design, but some of the technology used does not doesn't make it seem like it's twenties thirties. So it got this sort of mixed mixed time period mm. that makes the art direction so interesting especially for a japanese film so it is a very entertaining uh sort of entertainment film that one might not expect to come off japan um and like i said it is it is admirable for being an original creation and um it's admirable for trying to do something that you know it's not a tv series or anything and, and yeah, it's it's I think it's a very underrated film in terms of outside of Japan. It didn't do that well with Japan actually, which is sad. But yeah, I think it's a film definitely worth watching if you're a fan of the actors or you just really wanna wanna have a good time. I think. All right. Well, I think that's gonna wrap things up for our show this week. Uh, we're running a little bit long. But we'll be back next time, uh, probably be talking about uh, Christmas Carol, the new Jim Carrey animated 3D feature, um, as well as, I think, oh, what's the what's the local film starting this week, Kevin? Uh, to Live and Die in Mong Kok, Wang Jing. Mm. Yeah. So we'll have a Wang Jing film to talk about as well. And you were, I think you were mentioning on Twitter you saw Kaiji earlier. Yeah. Uh, so hopefully we'll have some time to work that into the discussion as well. So we will be back then to talk about that, plus whatever other news seems to be happening happening at the time. In the meantime, you can follow along with us at the website. If you'd like to follow along with what Kevin is doing, you can keep up with his blog over at the uh, lovehongkongfilm.com page. And you can follow Kevin on his Twitter, which is, Kevin, what is your Twitter again? Yes, the Golden Rock, one word. Or uh, you can contact me, email me at uh, the Golden Rock, again, one word at gmail.com. And uh, I'd like to throw in a little plug to my new gig here, Paul, if you don't mind. No, go ahead. Um, I am doing uh, reviews of an uh, English language film now on the uh, new movie site here at the Hong Kong Yellow Page website. You can read my some of my reviews at uh, movies.yp.com.hk. Uh, slash en so that's the english version or we can't find it just movies.yp.com.hk and then click on the eng the english version of the page and you'll see some of our reviews there yeah and we'll i'll put a link up to that uh, on the note on the show notes and the uh the website links uh so we'll look forward to reading kevin's reviews and until next time we wish you all good viewing and we'll see you next time see you next time
Matsu, Matsu, what's her name? Uh, crap. Matsuko. Okay, I'll, I'll remember it later. Uh, <laughs> very just, 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 for, just for the record, we want to make, be sure that the audience knows it's not Matsu crap because it's not Matsu crap. Yeah, that, that is I not her name. That's, that's not even a Japanese name, as far as I know. Yes. I definitely remember more of the film than I did. Yeah, you have to go back and watch it. It's Because I remember watching in the cinema and I was a little bit underwhelmed. I would say I was expecting a little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah, but when I went back and watched it to prepare for the show, I was like, yeah, that's better than I remember. Until. Dude, what are you doing over there? Oh, sorry, sure. <laughs> Sounds like you're cutting up a corpse or something. <laughs> it is a ghost film. Yeah. Um, 